And to build on that, trauma is so, so powerful, in fact, that it changes our DNA. So that generational trauma, it's not just living that trauma, it is physically changing our DNA. Mm -hmm. And so that, that component, I think, is oftentimes overlooked. Welcome to Education Rx. The education system in the U.S. is sick, and we all need to find ways to heal it. I'm Holly Bronson. I'm Shannon Donaway. Together, we have almost 50 years of experience working as professionals in a school setting. We may not have all the answers, but we're looking for people who have a piece of the solution puzzle. This is Education Rx. All right, we are at episode seven. Can you even believe that we're on episode seven? I can't believe it. <laughs> Shannon is in shock. Um, <laughs> now we've had such a great journey getting a chance to talk to such amazing people. And today is no different. The only difference is we get to talk with some people that we are very, very familiar with and actually had a have a chance to work with. Yeah, we've worked with all of the people that we are interviewing today. Yes, and we the topic for today, we're going to be talking with some educators who work specifically with students who have what we call in the districts that we have worked in together effective education, but basically that boils down to students who have really significant behavioral concerns. And that may include students who have some mental health issues, maybe oppositional defiance, maybe even physical disability like autism. Yeah, I was going to say that that would include students on the spectrum. Because sometimes it's really hard as, as children are growing their nervous system, managing that dealing with the reactions that they have, and learning how to behave in a way that's going to serve them well in life. And that's this population of kids we're going to talk about. Yeah, sounds great. And so we're going to talk with Alyssa Clark, who is a behavior therapist in a district we've worked in, and she's just amazing. I've worked with a lot of different behavior therapists, but I think she's amazing. She is amazing. And then we get to talk with Celeste Dunlop, and she is an effective education teacher in this Colorado district that we are from, and she works with kids in elementary level, and that is a really challenging level because that grade of kids, that age group of kids, really struggles with that instant reaction, like learning how to filter that and control that. It's really hard. They're still figuring so much out. So much. And then we're going to talk with Ryan Montgomery, who has been a teacher with students who have effective ed issues and also been an educational assistant with those students. Currently, he's teaching in general education, but he's worked with students at middle and high school level. And so we thought it would be a good contrast with the age groups. Everybody. Yeah, we've got the whole gamut covered. Right. And Alyssa's done work with families in their homes as well as in an education setting. Yeah. So we're going to talk with them about some of the things they're seeing coming back from COVID with students who really struggle with classroom expectations and behaviors in a school setting and how they're managing that and what they're seeing as needs for that population in order to get them back on track. All right. Let's do it. Let's talk to them. This is going to be a big party because we're going to interview them all at once. Today okay. we are talking to several behavior specialists, so I'm going to let you all start. Alyssa, you want to go first? Sure. 
Yeah, my name is Alyssa Clark, and I'm a board certified behavior analyst or BCBA working for a school district and I've been doing this for about three years and before that I was a special education teacher working with students with diverse behavioral needs for eight years. All right and Ryan? I'm Ryan Montgomery and I am have been teaching for 23 years and have been an inter academic and behavioral interventionist for 14 years. Currently a sixth grade social studies teacher. And you were also an educational assistant or paraprofessional with students who had significant behavior needs for an extended period of time, yeah? That's true, yeah, multiple years. Awesome. And Celeste? Well, I'm Celeste Dunlop, and I am an effective education teacher that works with kids who have been identified with some serious emotional disabilities. I have been in education for about 24 years. I've had multiple roles primarily working as a special education paraprofessional in affective education, then moving to resource classroom. And then um, I got my teaching degree and I have been a special education teacher here for about eight years. And I was also an interventionist for academic purposes as well. So. Awesome. And Shannon and I have had the wonderful pleasure of working with all of you. The pleasure was ours. <laughs> it was. Uh, <laughs> we have lots of skills on this Zoom. This is uh we do. It is a good group. And this is different for us. Usually we have just one person that we talk to, but we thought we'd have a little party with our friends and discuss social emotional issues for students who are considered behavioral needs. And I was thinking maybe, Alyssa, you could start us off from your area of expertise and kind of define for listeners what population we're talking about. What is going on with this group of kids and how do they get identified like as a behavioral issue student? Yeah, so I think, you know, regardless of their actual like disability label, what we're really talking about are students who their behavior is so impacting to them being able to access gen ed curriculum or access, you know, sort of the same things as their grade level peers. And so that behavior is so impacting and that could be, you know, any type of behavior, whether that be shutting down or being aggressive and all those things in between. And so less about like disability label, like I said, and more about just like, is behavior impacting their ability to learn and the learning of those around them? But you see students who have a wide variety of medical diagnoses or even educational diagnoses like autism, like yeah. trauma. Mm -hmm. yeah. What are some of those yeah. heavy hitters? I'd say, you know, most of the students that I'm working with are on the autism spectrum. However, we've got quite a few students who have just been impacted with trauma. And a lot of that due to, I think, our topic today of things that have happened during the pandemic and how COVID has really shaped that. So yeah, ASD, autism, trauma, other developmental disabilities. We just have a lot of little kids coming in little guys, little girls that are just really struggling to access school. So. And that's such a good point to start out with. We were hearing on Fox News and some different agencies where social emotional learning has been leveled out as exclusively for students who are struggling with gender and sexual orientation issues. And this is a really good place to clarify that is not what social emotional learning is, right? 
So <laughs> Celeste, tell us from your experience, what is social emotional learning? So I get this question a lot. I talk about with my students, social emotional learning is essentially learning how to interact with your peers, learning how to cope and regulate, learning how to interact with society in general and to follow those expected behaviors. So we work on things as simple as having a conversation. We work with things on how to react to a situation. We work with learning how to handle those moments where we are dysregulated and we need to cope, but we might not have those strategies. So that's really what we work on when we're working on those SEL lessons. It's just learning how to interact with somebody so that everybody's safe and is getting what they need. And turn taking is something as therapists that Shannon and I have to work on a lot as well. And it would be surprising to listeners to know there are a lot of students who haven't had exposure to turn-taking, whether a conversation, in an assignment, in a social setting, game playing, any of those situations. And it is troublesome. Absolutely. I think some of our biggest areas where I've noticed kids struggling is on the playground when they lose a game or they don't know how to even ask to join a game or to invite somebody else to play a game. And then that becomes a bit of a trigger or they shut down. You know, that's that foundational problem that I see a lot of times is that lack of social skills is not allowing them to interact with peers. And Celeste, you primarily at this point work with K through fifth. So kindergarten Mm -hmm. through fifth students who have behavioral issues. And Ryan, you work with mostly middle school kids historically with the behavior issues, or have you worked with other other grade levels for behavior stuff? I've worked almost exclusively with behavior stuff specifically, almost exclusively in middle school. And then Alyssa, you're all the way, every grade across the district, preschool through post-graduation. Yeah. So I'm working with individuals who are three to 21. And you've also worked privately with students. That's right. Yeah. So I had a little gap year in between teaching and working for the school district as a behavior analyst. And during that time, I was doing home-based behavioral therapy for, you know, several different clients actually and working on building up some of those lagging skills and and decreasing some pretty impacting behaviors in the home. Well, I was going to say, so all of you have had experience, but don't bug me. (laughs) All of you have had experience before COVID and now after COVID or in the middle. What's changed? What do you guys see as the big differences? I mean, at the middle school level, middle school is always a tough age. I mean, it's, and it always has been. For behavior and those those things, it just always has been. That's just the nature of the beast because the way kids are changing and transitioning, it's just such an odd time of time for growth. But what I've noticed is that I have to spend way more time explicitly teaching social emotional issues every single day, or my classes won't run the way like no learning will get accomplished. Like I have to specifically every single day remind them like just what the norms of class are like, hey, we don't all scream out. Like we, we need to raise our hands so everybody can be heard. And like when we have a talking piece, for example, you need to respect the speaker. And those like basic things that were just like expectations by the time, you know, you just expected as a middle school teacher that by the time they got to middle school, they would have been taught that in elementary school. And you shouldn't have like the thought was, why would you have to teach these things anymore? But since COVID, those things, I mean, from those basic things to, I was observing a different class yesterday and 
there were literally a, a guy was rolling around on the floor. Another guy, while his teacher was giving instruction, got up, walked across the classroom, picked up a water bottle from another kid, started drinking out of it. And like just all these behaviors that you're like, wow, we need to have a conversation around these things. And and people need to get used to the idea that you have content, a little bit of the content needs to get pushed to the back burner. And because if we can't teach these kids how to function in the world, then all you can teach all the all the content you want, but it's not going to do any good. Well, and just, I mean, that's such the point, right? That you can't get to content or academic learning when students can't regulate and understand norms for a classroom setting. These are foundational skills. And that's, I mean, I think to build off of what Monty said, we just actually had a staff meeting that discussed this, you know, the general ed teachers were talking about what they're noticing in their classrooms and the things that I'm noticing as well. And it's like, Kids don't even have problem solving skills whatsoever. They immediately go to, I need help solving this problem. And typically that's a thing that we see like in kindergarten and we teach, this is how we solve a problem. How are you going to fix that? How can you work through this? I'm having to do that with fourth and fifth graders because the last time that they had a normal year in school, and I say normal, but it was 2019, really. So we've had such a huge gap in what the norm should look like and how to solve our own problems and how to be in a classroom and interact with peers that, you know, we are having to go back and teach those foundational skills so that we can access academics. And academics are absolutely not going to take, they are just not going to happen if, you know, we have kids rolling around. And actually, Monty, you said that I was observing a fifth grade and that is exactly what I saw was kids rolling around on the floor while the teacher was doing direct instruction they could not attend to what she was teaching. So we have these high expectations academically, but we still need to work on those other skills before we even attend those things. I agree. And Holly, to sort of bounce off what you were saying about regulation, I think I would love if somebody who made decisions would tell every teacher, gen ed, special ed, specials teachers, to prioritize regulation before teaching. Because the behaviors are occurring because so many kids are dysregulated. There's not an opportunity for them to regulate and teachers are then becoming dysregulated. And so I would love if someone could just say, it is our focus right now to regulate ourselves and regulate our students so that we can access curriculum. And I think like everyone's functioning there. Every school I go into, I'm in so many different schools. That is what everyone's craving is for someone to just say, teach social skills teach expectations, teach how to regulate. Episode two, we actually interviewed one of your colleagues, Courtney Ham, and she got us introduced to an SEL program called Breathe for Change. And that was their focus. Using yoga and breath work, they use that as a foundation for SEL learning, but the whole focus is on regulation. And Courtney was talking about in that sort of in-between year between quarantine and when we started coming back, that 2021 school year, their school, and you guys know her school, they reduced the workload for students and teachers and increased the support for social, emotional support. And during that school year, that was the only school in our district that did not see sliding back on test scores. They didn't move forward, they maintained, but they didn't go backward. And I think that's just one little drop in the bucket example of how 
important it is. And I think a lot of people, parents, lay people that aren't in education don't necessarily understand the impact that social emotional skills and self-regulation have on learning. And what you guys are talking about is exactly why when a kid's rolling around the floor, they're not learning their time tables, you know, they can't go to a test. And past that. And well, and I, neither are their peers. And I think that's the right. Other thing, right? So like, yes, that student is impacted, but so are the five students around them and the teacher. And so then, you know, everyone feels that energy from the teacher and that teacher's escalation and, and no, nobody wins, you know, in that scenario. Right. Well, right. and to build onto that, Alyssa, or off of that, you know, you, we talk about, and I use this analogy all the time about we're on an airplane and they say, hey, if we have a situation and the oxygen masks come on, put your own on before we help our kids or help somebody else. And that's the same thing, you know, teachers are getting so dysregulated and they're not taking care of themselves. And so it's really challenging in order to, like it's, it's challenging for them to help students when they're not regulated and it just continues to be this, you know, building problem that it's like a never never ending cycle really it just continues to build and build and build the other thing that i noticed too is like attention spans are absolutely at a minimum right now and it's almost like we have to go back and revisit what is expected of how long we can attend and how and what really we need to do as educators to support our students in developing those stamina and the ability to attend for longer times. Right. Endurance is a big issue, I think, because when we had kids at home learning virtually, they could get up and walk away from the screen and hear what was going on, but do their own thing. And so that self-regulation piece that you were talking about, Alyssa, they don't have that in a classroom. Mm-hmm. And how are we going to move forward academically? And with the testing scores that are coming back with drops as large as 12 points, knowing that two points is significant statistically, 12 point drop in math, reading, science. This is an issue. We can't address that if we don't address what's happening social, emotional wise, self regulation, ad- advocating appropriately. Those are big issues. And I know. Ryan, you and I were having conversation about a student that you have, a female student that is on the spectrum, but just the approach of how, when they need something, how they address that, what they say versus what they actually mean. And I think you might share a little bit about that because it helps listeners to understand what we're talking about when we have a vision in our mind of what these students look like. A lot of people don't know what that looks like. Yeah. So this particular student has two things going on. She's on the spectrum and then she's also an affective ed student. So a student who's severely challenged, like she's pretty, she's very challenged in terms of her, her affect toward other people. And she just doesn't have a lot of either awareness nor want of awareness of in the, in the relational sense. She struggles with that and doesn't really care about it that much. We're, we, but we were trying to teach her some skills to use because you can't, you can't force somebody to care about something, but what you can do is you can teach them, hey, the world works in a better way for you when you're more on a, on a pleasant relational status with the people that you're dealing with and how you communicate your wants and needs. And so that is just constant work we were doing with this particular student. And it's getting better. One of the things that we have kind of, and this, you know, I could get stoned in educational circles for saying this, but one of the things that I've learned and that we're actually studying here at 
my school is through this idea of collaborative problem solving through a book called the, the School Discipline Fix. And one of the one of the things that they talk about is lowering expectations. And people are always like, you can't lower expectations. You know, you got to keep them up here because they'll rise to meet them. Well, you got to meet the kids, educators and people in schools and parents. We, we got to meet where the kids are. You can have an expectation that's top, top level. But if the kids aren't there, they're not going to magically rise to that level. Mm -hmm. And so we got to meet them where they are. And the and to me, the biggest, most important thing, probably it's always been this way, but I think it's even more so now after COVID, is the, is the relational piece. You have to build relationships with all of these kids, or that's the cornerstone of how any progress is ever going to get made with these kids, whether it be academic or SEL growth. That's the absolute cornerstone. And like, I mean, I'll be honest with you, like, and this may not be super popular among some of my bosses somewhere, but like on Fridays, if the kids and my kids this year have been spectacular, if the kids have done what they need to do and met the expectations that I have for them that week, every single Friday, we play relationship based games. We have fun. We, there's absolutely zero academics on Friday, zero. Hmm. I don't feel the least bit bad about it because it builds those relationships. And that's part of the reason why my kids do so well. I think we just need to reframe that discussion in the world of education. I have fun Fridays also, Ryan. <laughs> Great um, minds think alike. <laughs> I know. And we play a lot of games and we do cooking and life skills at that time because those are the things that motivate my kids. And that's what they show expected behaviors to get mm -hmm. um and so like a, it's such a great opportunity for them to practice the skills that you are all teaching them in a natural environment right like i work with some students in a social skills group and i could teach them how to interact till i'm blue in the face but when they're really going to demonstrate it and show it is when they're playing a board game or playing a game that requires some type of you know turn-taking and empathy and understanding and problem-solving. And so I think it's, it's the best way to get your students to show what they know as far as social-emotional learning goes. Sorry, Mom. I was just going to say, the other thing is that it is, and in those fun Fridays, it's explicitly taught, like, we circle up first. And it's like, what are the learning targets for this game? We're playing, like, the, my kids love bandana tag. I don't know why. They just love it. And so they always want to play that on fun Fridays. And then I have them do an, like another initiative, a team building initiative. But there's always two learning targets and they're all behavioral SEL learning targets with the thing like, yes, last week it was integrity. Like when your bandana gets pulled or did you stop and, and follow the rules? B, when you don't, when you have extra ones, do you have, are you practicing empathy to your fellow students? And did you give some bandanas away? So those types of things. And then at the end of all of that, then we debrief it too. How did it go? How did you feel about this? Scale of one to five, like were we successful as a group? Like those types of things. And it's all, and they don't even know that they're learning it. That's the, and that's what I think when the best learning happens, like they can articulate it, they know what's going on, but because it's through this relational building activity, it's like, yeah, it's just amazing. Mm -hmm. I think and it means something. It. Like it just means something to them, right? Like they don't know that they're learning, but they're having such a meaningful opportunity to connect with each other and with you. And like it, it's so much more than set and get. And that's also when they're going to carry those skills over when they do it in something fun like that. 
that's a concept in therapy that I think I, I use that example only because it's really specific in the language. But when we're teaching a kid a skill or even an adult a skill that's new or they've lost the skill because of an injury and you're trying to get it back, we're always looking for that generalization is what we call it, where you learn a skill, but you can use it not just in that classroom or not just in, you know, when I've been pulled into the counselor's office, but you can use that skill at home or with friends on the playground. And that generalization, like Shannon said, is best served when we put them in a game kind of situation that's real life for them. Right. That's what I was going to hit on was that generalizing of skills, because like when we do fun Fridays in here, we have to invite a friend to play. We have to go over the rules, agree on the rules and discuss, oh, we might have to negotiate. I don't really want to play connect for today. I would rather play Uno. Well, how do we solve that problem? How do we figure out who goes first? These are all things that at some point you're going to use outside of my classroom. You're going to use it on the playground. You're going to use it at home. You're going to use it in a classroom. You might even use it at the grocery store, you know, oh, Sorry, we got to the checkout counter at the same time. You go first. You know, these small little things that we do can be applied in so many different environments. And, you know, I think people do not recognize that there's a lot that can be learned from playing games. There's a lot that can be learned from interacting with your peers in that way. Because also another thing is if somebody's not showing expected behavior, it means a lot more when a peer says, you know what? I don't want to play with you right now. You just cheated. You showed me that you have no integrity. I'm not going to expose myself to that. We'll try again next week. You know, and I do have kids that say that they're really great at naming it and they're learning those skills of advocating. I don't like to play with you when you are not being honest. And they're I good at naming are- it because you have worked with them and taught them what, how to name that and what those feelings are, what, how to give themselves those good boundaries. And that's what we want people listening to really hear is those aren't skills that we magically get. Somebody has to teach us forever. (laughs) One of the things that is a focus, at least in my building right now, in terms of instruction is they want to focus on complexity and transfer. And I don't think there's anything more complex than behavioral instruction. And then the transfer piece is when they're on the playground at lunch by themselves playing Gaga ball or whatever it is they're doing. And then they're using those skills. It doesn't get any better than that. So I think, again, we really need to shift the mindset back into let's focus. Everybody should be focusing on SEL skills every single day. It's like the, the hammering on the academic piece is just especially now after COVID needs to, that needs to go away. I know they're lagging in some skills and I get it, but we're not going to get them there unless everybody's on the same, like our ships are all going in the same direction in terms of SEL instruction. As an adult, a couple of years ago in the place that my family lives, there was a guy on the freeway who cut somebody off. The person he cut off had a gun in the vehicle, pulled up alongside, trying to shoot the driver, but instead shot the toddler in the back seat who died. This is an example of somebody who does not have social emotional skills to deal with frustration and anger and what happens from that. And these kids that are, you know, we are able to, in some ways, manage them now because they're small and they don't have that freedom and power of an adult. 
are going to grow up to be adults. And what what is our world going to look like if our leaders and the people in our communities are just shooting people when they're ticked off? You know, like that can't happen. And like, what's the priority, right? Like the reason why that person has grown into the person that shoots at people in the car is because, you know, I would assume someone didn't take the time to really teach them the missing skill, right? Someone pushed them along through the system, meeting academic goals or whatever it may be, and really not focusing on, you know, something that really, really matters, which is teaching the skills on how to live in the world adaptively, really. And what would it be like if instead of pushing really hard, focusing solely on academics, if we did make that shift, like you guys are talking about, and really looked at relationships and skill building for social, emotional, and behavioral issues, knowing we live in a world where a huge percentage, and Alyssa, you may be able to give us numbers, a huge percentage of people have trauma. I mean, ridiculous numbers of people have trauma that they're dealing with and what that does to our nervous system and how that creates that fight or flight response that is chemical and physiological that goes above and beyond rational thought. If we can't focus on that, if we would choose to make a shift to that and really focus in on giving those skills and helping to soothe that trauma and give those students the ways to deal with that, if they couldn't do advanced algebra, I mean, what's going to be the most important thing in the outcome that they can do that advanced algebra or that they can go to college later on and learn those skills, but they have the life skill of being regulated and being able to control their response and be appropriate in different environments in the world, which one is going to be more powerful in the short term? I, I think the social emotional issues. It affects everyone. Right. Yeah. And Holly, so it's one in seven children have experienced ACEs, <laughs> right? Or adverse childhood experiences. And so what does this perpetuate? You know, if we don't pay attention and if we don't teach skills and we don't heal this, it just perpetuates more, right? And we know what that looks like. I think all of us that, that are talking together, we know that trauma is historical. Trauma happens, you know, through, through generations of people because people haven't learned skills and continue to, you know, make the mistakes that their families have made. And so we need to focus on that and we need to teach the skills so that that ends with our students right now. And to build on that, trauma is so, so powerful, in fact, that it changes our DNA. So that generational trauma, it's not just living that trauma, it is physically changing our DNA. Mm -hmm. And so that, that component, I think, is oftentimes overlooked. And honestly, I, when I think about that number one and seven, I think that it's actually lowballing it. And I, I think in my experience, like I look around and I'll sit in a, I'll sit at a meeting or I'll be at dinner with my husband and I look and I look at behaviors and I'm like, Ooh, that's interesting. I'm noticing. And, and maybe it's what I do every day, but I'm like, that's a trauma response. Look at that. Look at what are you noticing? And he has a similar observation because of his profession. And he's like, oh yeah, I wonder what's going on there. So it, it'd be interesting to see like an updated after COVID mm. because we saw an increase in violence in violent crimes. We've seen an increase in a lot of different things that perpetuate trauma and kids trauma with us as an adult. I changed during COVID and I have great regulation strategies and skills. That's what I teach. So I think it'd be interesting to see those that data updated and see what it looks like now. Yeah. And I think that brings me to the thought of like Bruce Perry, you know, in his book, what happened to you? Like what happened to you? COVID. 
for all of us, right? Like for real, that's what happened. And there's a lot of other things that have factored in for many other people, but all of us have experienced the pandemic together and everybody is different and has changed and has been negatively impacted in some way. The other thing that I always think about in terms of like, even like later elementary school through mid school and certainly into high school, those kids were all old enough on some level or another, right, to be left home by themselves because people got, you know, people had to work during COVID too, you know? So you think about all these kids who were home for so long with nothing except a screen to occupy their time and, and those negative behaviors and those are all for everyone to see online all the time and with no ability to filter that stuff for themselves. I mean, like it just boggles my mind. I'm kind of shocked that they're not struggling more than they are. Not that they are struggling, but I mean, it's just thinking about kids who were, I mean, I was teaching at the time at the height of COVID, I was teaching at an alternative high school and those kids would, if they got online at all, I just couldn't believe some of the behaviors that I was seeing. And it didn't take very long. Like two, two students got on to my Google classroom zoom meeting in bed with one another. Oh and they thought, they thought that was appropriate. So just as an example. <laughs> yeah. And I, I mean, I had similar experiences, Monty. I had kindergarten student show up on a Zoom meeting completely in his underwear and he was no adult in the room. And I'm like, buddy, you need to go put on some clothes. And, you know, having to manage that from a distance from my house and I'm trying to text his mom, hey, just so you know, um, so-and-so showed up on our Zoom meeting with a group and he's just in his underwear. Can you, she was not there. Well, Celeste, my question is like, did he do that because he didn't realize he should be clothed or did he do that because he wanted a reaction? Like what, what do you think? Honestly, I think he couldn't find his clothes. Um, (laughs) And was like, well, I got to get to class. Yeah. Um, And he was like, I think that's the disconnect, right? Is like, any yep. of us would be like, I can't, you know, I don't have my clothes. I better not show up. Like that's inappropriate, but that's right. what we're dealing with right now. Yeah. His problem yeah. solving skills were, I told Miss Dunlop I'd be on our class meeting. <laughs> so here I am, you Close know, and, and again, you know, I look at, I guess one of the good things about the, about COVID and doing distance learning at that time is it gave me a different perspective as an educator looking at my students' lives. I got to see what their household was like. I got to see, I mean, I see parents here, but what I saw on Zoom and, you know, through those interactions was more enlightening or, you know, it gave me more information on how to support my kiddos and the skills that they might need because I saw what they were living. And I saw, you know, first of all, they didn't get to escape that, you know, at all. Where school, a lot of times in a normal setting or normal year, School is that safe place. School is that constant. It's our norm. And I know what's going to happen there. I know I get food there. I know I am safe there. You know, during COVID, our kiddos didn't have that. They were at home living that trauma, if it's a trauma environment, over and over again. And there was no escape. They may be food insecure, home insecure. You know, parents might be having some drug issues or alcohol issues. And that is their life every single day. So, 
I guess the blessing in, in COVID for me was getting to see my students in that environment so that I had, I guess, more empathy or more understanding so that I can better support them. And that's sort of the topic of this whole season, that teachers were first responders and we as a culture didn't identify that but they were the only ones seeing kids in their home environments. And for many families, that was the only person they had to connect to, to ask for food, to ask for support with issues happening in their home. And teachers, for the most part, have not received training on how to manage that. And so many teachers left that traumatized and overwhelmed. And then we saw that mass exodus and we're still seeing mass exodus from education and I don't know if people understand having a class full of 23 kids is hard, but having to double that because there's not enough teachers, how in the heck are you going to teach? You can't teach. And we are going to continue to have low scores. And if we don't elevate teachers in our society and recognize that what they do is one of the most important jobs on the planet, if we don't treat them that way, if we don't pay them that way, how can we expect them to do the things that they need to get done and be satisfied with that when they feel like they're not respected, when they feel like they're not supported from administrators, from families, from the environment around them and the people in our society? We've got to shift that if we want to see things change because teachers are dysregulated too. Yeah. One of the, yeah, I think one of the, so one of the one of the great things about that alternative school where I worked was that the kids had to have a job or volunteer or an internship in the afternoon. So we only and teacher schedule was seven to three, and the kids were only there from eight to noon. So we had all of that and almost all of that time except for one Tuesday morning a week would be like a quick staff meeting, but all of the rest of that time was ours. So that was plenty of time for me to get like my planning done, my grading done, all of the communication things that I need to do because it was untouched by anything else. I mean, periodically, I'd, you know, I'd go to an IEP meeting or something, but generally speaking, that time was mine. And we were encouraged at that particular school to use that whatever extra time we had to contact kids, contact families and go to their homes. So I would spend like one day a week, one of those afternoons a week, going to different kids' houses. And like, we had this huge closet full of food. And so I'd take a box of food to this kid. I'd take donated clothes to this kid. And I think that's a, a big shift that needs to happen as well in terms of teachers have way too much to do and too little time to do it. And so the way, if, if, we, if every school, like I'm not saying every school has to have kids that aren't there for half the day, but hire enough people where where teachers are only working like teaching that half day and then they have the time to practice building those relationships with kids and and it's not it's not like one extra thing it's something that it's just built into your day and it's encouraged you know at, that was just i think a huge eye-opening experience it was the first school i worked where there was that much time and it was an sel was the number one absolute priority on every for every task and every single day. It was amazing. Um, I missed that school a lot, actually. But that's, I think, we once we need to get to that kind of place and a place where, yeah, where teachers are valued. And well, everybody who works in education is valued for like their time, their efforts. And like, I'm sorry, we need to get paid more money. We work our, we work our tails to the bone and we're highly educated professional people. And, you know, the only, there's no other profession 
that I can think of where you go to this much school and put this much time in and you make hardly anything. Yeah, pennies, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, just above poverty level. Exactly, yeah. I was thinking about it today. I got a, a donation today. Somebody offered to buy snacks from my classroom. And I was like, sweet, that's gonna save me like 40 bucks this week, you know? And no, 40 bucks is not the end of the world, but it's like, I'm feeding other people's children out of my money because there's just no funding for that, you know? And kids need to eat. And part of one of the regulation strategies is, hey, have a snack. Because, you know, I, I mean, obviously I like to eat, but I, <laughs> I use food as a coping strategy sometimes. Or if oh, you're yeah, hungry, so you're not gonna learn. You're hangry, right? Like we're yes. all hangry. Can you imagine? Yeah. And I'm a, I'm a strong believer in snacks. You all know that. <laughs> I have provided snacks for all of my kids at all of my schools for years and years. So it's huge. Me too. All right. So guys, can you guys share with us and our listeners one to three takeaways that you would like to give out? Takeaways that the listeners could implement or just really bring to the forefront of their awareness that would help them moving forward, whether they're an educator or a parent, politician, whatever you want to touch on. When we're talking about students with trauma, mental health issues, and behavioral issues coming back from COVID in a school setting, what are your takeaways that you want people to remember? My big thing is that these people, whoever they are, educators, parents, they need to learn how to regulate themselves and model, 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 model the S out of that for the people around them. Because that's what I think it really comes down to is kids need to see their parents and their caregivers and the people around them who they love and respect demonstrating those skills themselves so that they can do that as well. And right now, I think so many adults, teachers, parents, whoever, are not regulated still due right. to the pandemic and that like we have to prioritize our own mental health and we have to show kids that it's important and we've got to take the time to to name it like i'm feeling this way and i need to do this you know so like i'm feeling overwhelmed and i need to take a walk and then i'll be ready like we need to be okay with modeling that and i think the more we can just name it and talk about it and be human in front of these kids that's only going to lend itself to them growing into socially, emotionally aware people. That's my big takeaway. Normalizes regulation and it normalizes the fact that everybody has emotions. So I love what you said, Alyssa. I actually had similar thoughts for my takeaway, but I'm actually, since you said that so eloquently, I'm going to give my other one is I think I want everybody to validate and honor and respect that trauma is real and you cannot compare it to your own trauma. You just need to let that person do what they need to take care of themselves. And really by honoring it, we are giving them power to overcome. And that's my takeaway is teaching those strategies and, and honoring what people have experienced so that they know how to take care of themselves. And I think for me, number one, we get, we have we just have to take the time to teach relational skills and SEL every single day overtly and we got to model it i mean that's just it and the other stuff needs to go be secondary after that 
And then the other thing is that idea that I talked about earlier about lowering expectations. And it sounds bad, but it's not because when we're meeting those kids where they are, we're again, modeling to them, hey, this is how we're going to problem solve this. And we can turn those negative behaviors and things into positive growth by doing that. But we can't just say, this is the standard. Everyone's, everyone who walks into this classroom needs to meet it. Because, and I don't think it's ever been that way, frankly, ever been successful that way by having this arbitrary line where you think all kids need to be there because they're not going to be there. And we got to support that. And lowering expectations isn't a bad thing. I think whether you're an athlete training for a skilled activity or in therapy, we all have similar concepts like what you're talking about, Ryan. But for me as a therapist, we call it grading, right? So when we have somebody, we're trying to teach a new skill or regain a skill, we start with the easiest thing that we can have them do in part so that they have some success and build their confidence and interest in trying. And then you make it a little bit harder and then a little bit harder. But at each level, there's a layer of success to that because you are meeting them where they're at. And if you're an athlete, you don't start off running a marathon. You know, you may walk for 30 minutes and then after a week or so of that, then you walk for an hour. And then, you know, so there's always in everything we do, there's that level of grading or meeting them where they're at and then raising the bar as you go. And so I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense. And it's hard because when people are looking at numbers on scores and saying, we got to get those scores up, we're missing the bigger picture. We can't get the scores up. We can't make academics work if we don't give kids the ability to regulate and engage and have endurance for sitting through things that are difficult or going to a test when they panic, how do you manage that? How do you calm down and prepare yourself so that you can do better on this test and be successful? If we don't work on those things, we're not gonna get to the academics. Shannon, what are your takeaways? Oh my, my takeaways. Well, I just like, I'm so impressed with you three, to be honest. I always am, but my takeaways, you have to give me a minute. I wasn't prepared for that. I know. I like to throw you off. It makes my life fun. (laughs) Why you got to do that to me? So actually my big takeaway was I really liked the way Celeste described social emotional learning. She said, and I even wrote it down, how just teaching kids how to interact, cope, react and use expected behaviors. And like, if you put it in such simple terms like that, I feel like we should all be on the same page on that, right? There's no question about, we want our kids to cope. We want them to react well and use expected behaviors. There's there's not an argument against that, I can't imagine. <laughs> so when you, when you explain social emotional learning in that way, I really feel like we all can be on the same page. So that's my takeaway. Yeah. What about parents? Should education systems or should agencies that are creating SEL curriculum, should they be creating something for parents? Should there be online opportunities for parents to go on YouTube or enter a class to learn some of those skills for home? Because like Celeste was talking about, so many of our kids live in homes where there's violence, there's substance abuse, there's lack of resources, and that creates stress for the parents as well as for the children. I was a single mom for years, and I can tell you, 
there are times that I fed my kids and did not eat because that's what I had. And I wasn't going to let them go hungry, but was I my best during that time? No, I was hungry. I was hangry. (laughs) And so there are people out there having that. And so as much as our teachers need that oxygen mask, our parents do as well, because like you guys are talking about modeling is the most important way for our kids to learn and embedding social, emotional skills and activities into everyday actions at school is the most person, the most positive, powerful, that's the word I'm looking for, the most powerful way to teach social emotional learning. Because if we sit down and say, okay, for the next 30 minutes, we're going to talk about social emotional learning. Eh. But if you are modeling that for kids, it just becomes intrinsic. And so I think everything that you guys have said is really key. And as we look through the different episodes we've been going through, you guys are really shining a light on just how significant it is that we are not addressing this and we need to. (laughs) Yeah. I would really like not to have such a large caseload. So I'm good with, uh, you know, promoting proactive approach for sure. Absolutely. And I think even before COVID hit, we were seeing behaviors on the rise just because in our world, we were seeing more trauma, more people under stress and not knowing how to manage that. It was already happening. And then COVID hit and, you know, put trauma on steroids and made it that much bigger because we all had to experience it on some level. I'm so grateful that you guys took time to talk with us today. Really appreciate your time and your insights. We actually, we got our first fans. We got, (laughs) we had some people from a district up in Denver that said they listened to us every week and that they really liked that we're hitting those hard issues. And I think this is a hard issue and I'm glad that people are happy that we're talking about it because we've got to start these conversations. It's the reality of what's happening. Well, thanks for having us. Yeah, Yeah, thanks. All right. Well, one of the things I would like to do a little disclaimer that we've done in other episodes, but I want to be really clear. When we're interviewing people, we're not trying to promote a specific concept or program or resource or idea. We are here to just bring all those things to the forefront for your consideration. Yeah, we're just talking about the different possibilities that are out there. What people are doing, everybody gets to make up their own mind about whether they think it will work or not. And in this episode, Ryan brought up the idea of how we keep very high expectations for students academically. And maybe we need to bring those down for some students, especially post-COVID, in order to get them feeling that level of success that the support them in engaging in learning and participating and not feeling defeated right out of the gate. And that's maybe a controversial idea for some people. And I would just put out there, you know, what we're doing isn't working. Our test scores are coming back lower than historically almost ever. So what we're doing isn't working. Maybe it's time to entertain some crazy left field ideas. I'm not sure it's a left field idea, is it? No, I mean, I I actually see the value in that idea because as a medical provider, we do use that concept. Well, that's a therapeutic concept. Absolutely. And we it's therapeutic because it helps the nervous system. It helps the brain gain skill effectively by building on success. And people will continue to engage in something, even if it's hard, if they are finding success. So I think as a therapist, that concept feels very logical to me. But I think for people who maybe are coming from a different angle, it may feel a little left field. But I just hope we can all take a deep breath and say, you know what? I'm going to be open to hearing ideas. That doesn't mean I have to embrace them. It just means that 
I'm going to hear what it has to say and see if there's value for me. And sometimes there are different parts that have good pieces to them. Right. Maybe the whole idea isn't perfect for your district or your classroom or whatever, but some piece of it could be. Right. And I think when we're talking about students who really struggle with relationships and appropriate behavior in different settings, including the school setting, maybe grading (laughs) the expectations for them, maybe bringing those expectations down to where they find some success and then building from there is 110% a rational, good idea. Yeah, maybe. I think that we got some really, really great information and strategies and ideas from these awesome people we interviewed today. But I think we have so much further to go. And again, I know that some people are under a misconception that social emotional learning has to do with something besides what we're talking about. We're talking about the social emotional learning that is focused on how do students engage in relationship and how does that impact academics? So whether it's peer relationships, teacher relationships, administrative relationships, I think it's for students, how they're managing themselves self-regulation. Yeah, I really like the way Celeste explained it. She did a great job. It was super simple and very straightforward. So that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about something that has to do with sexual orientation or identification. I think having empathy and treating people equitably no matter where they're coming from is always important. But when we're talking social emotional learning, we're talking about what Celeste described. Next week is going to be our final interview with Angela Griffin. Angela is the CEO, executive and leadership coach with an organization that she's going to talk to us about. She works not only with an organization that's called Ebel, I believe, Ebel. I don't know if I'm saying that right. I'm sure it's in an acronym. It's E-B-B-E-L-L. I don't remember. I don't remember either. But when we talk to her, she explains it. So you'll find out next week. (laughs) And then we also, she also is on the Board of Education for Washington, the state of Washington. And they are considered a model state for education. And she is going to talk with us about that preschool level because that was so highly impacted during COVID. And they did things a little differently in Washington. They were able to keep kids in daycare and preschool programs for an extended period of time. And that's impressive. So she'll talk about what she saw because they were able to keep kids in schools and getting education. And then ways that she worked with families who did virtual at a preschool level, because I think that sounds very difficult to do with a little kiddo. And then she's also going to talk about basically a dropout rate, but looking at those kids that are graduate level or high school level close to graduation. And honestly, she brought something up that I didn't even realize was an issue. Those kids that just kind of dropped off the map. Disappeared. Yeah. And schools aren't looking for them Yeah, because of their age group. They're like, well, maybe they just dropped out and they don't have time to find them. And that's concerning. (laughs) So she's going to talk to us about that. And some of the states that that have found ways to really address that successfully. Yeah, it's going to be a great interview. Join us for that interview next week. And we're almost done with season one. Can you believe it? That's exciting. It's exciting. We've (laughs) we've just learned so much. All right, guys, you know the drill. Together, we We can can do do better. better. Get back here next week and hear Miss Angela Griffin. Bye.